4: the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So You said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Uh okay. Uh, hey, man, what's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide
0: with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. <laughs> hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me.
4: I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do.
2: Look, Mean Gene, I can't beat me. I'm the greatest of all time, and I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew that they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. (laughs) They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, hall of famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are... Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power Trip. Vito. Vito's got something in his hand there, but Paul London's going up for perhaps the, the shooting star press. London calling them. Get down now! Get out! Get out! Get out. Get out. Paul Get London out. now getting in the midst of it. Josh, Josh Vito just Get tossed out. something into the ring.
3: Some kind of device, some kind of weapon, and has used it on the back of Paul London's
2: skull, and there's the cover, and we have a new Cruiserweight Champion. Here is your winner, and the new WWE Cruiserweight Champion of the World, Muzio. Vito wants that title, and he has
3: it. Josh, here it is again. Well, Vito, as you can see right here, going into his sock, pulling out this this foreign object of this equalizer. And then just shooting right into Nunzio, and Nunzio right in the back of the head takes off Paul Wood. This is the two-man Couch. power chip of wrestling brought to you today and powered by our good friends down at Primal Conflict Wrestling. Head on over to primalconflictwrestling.com and find out everything about the 10-year anniversary show known as Dominance this coming Saturday in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. Again, visit Primal Conflict Wrestling for all the information on this huge event and a little bit more about Primal Conflict Wrestling in just a little bit, but the feature attraction of the 10-year anniversary event known as Dominance is today's guest He's a former WWE Cruiserweight Champion. He's a former ECW Tag Team Champion. You may remember him as Little Guido, but he is also known as Nunzio. But our guest today, James Maritato, joins the program to talk about everything in his career from ECW, to the WWE and also heading down to West Virginia for the huge Primal Conflict Wrestling 10-year anniversary event. But John, again, a great place to start is just talking about the career of little Guido and talking about what he's been able to accomplish in the business. And obviously, you know, you think about ECW right off the bat, you think about the WWE Cruiserweight Championship right off the bat, but this is a guy who at an early age decided he wanted to get into professional wrestling and had to do a lot to accomplish those goals. And I think that that is a great place to start. And I'm going to kind of hand it over to you to kind of give us a general introduction to this episode with Little Guido. Uh, A name that I think you kind of even referenced it is uh, in 2017. It's, uh, It's actually kind of funny we get to call him Little Guido because I don't think that that's something that the old censors would really be so proud of. Uh, nowadays, but John, when we talk about Little Guido and what he's been able to do in his career, obviously, a lot of stuff comes to mind, but what are some of the highlights that you can really pinpoint for this episode as we prepare for this huge event this coming weekend with the former Cruiserweight Champion himself, Little Guido?
2: Yes, Chad, you said it all right there little guido himself are we allowed to say that i guess we are i know this uh politically correct world we live in i don't think nowadays james Maritato, aka nunzio would be referred to as little guido but for our show's purposes we will call him just that obviously NECW, an ecw and original like we said in the interview NECW's ecw's original original and that is little guido quite a fascinating run quite an amazing career still going strong obviously Chad like you mentioned PCW Saturday night out there in West Virginia he's going to be in a four-way dance somewhat of a little homage to ECW there a little bit of a four-way dance and it should be a good one obviously he's still in tremendous shape still able to put on those amazing matches and speaking of amazing matches and speaking of a little Guido's career go back to ECW those three-way dances that he used to have with Super Crazy and Tajiri still hold up very very well today some great tremendous matches and thinking back to this interview and just kind of dissecting a little bit and going through ECW talking about it from the original run when he started in 92 to the end in 2001 we kind of go through the whole gamut there we talk about all of ECW we do talk about Paul Heyman of course but like you'll hear in this interview it's not uh, really too much negative going on i mean with the cw anderson interview that obviously blew up in the last couple of days you won't hear too much of that a little bit a little bit more positive about paul had a lot of good things to say not that really cw had anything bad to say i don't think he said anything that we haven't heard before about paul but i guess it touched a nerve and paul just kind of went crazy there and uh, you could check out his response on his twitter page and obviously um Quite a lengthy response, 21 tweets from Paul. So that was interesting. But you know, back to Guido and back to his run in ECW. Obviously, the FBI is something that so many people remember and remember fondly. And they had some great matches. Obviously, they are former tag team champs as well. So quite an amazing run, quite a career. Then you go to WWE and you win the cruiserweight title a few times, wrestling all the great cruiserweights that had to, you know, that the WWE had to offer at the time. We go through all of that as well but the one thing that really sticks out to me the one of the most fascinating parts in this interview and one of the high points for me is when we talk about his time in japan his time with uwfi over there in the far east talking about uwfi and talking about that worked shoot style it was so cool and it's so different and when you go back and you really watch those matches whether you, you know you do some tape trading or whatever you got to do go actually go on youtube and go check them out You will be you know amazed at some of it because a lot of it is a work and a lot of it is a shoot and obviously the finishes obviously are predetermined and that's the work part of it but the shoot part is some of the striking involved and some of the submissions they really kind of lay some stuff in there And like Guido talks about in the interview, sometimes there's some unexpected finishes when some other guys have some flash knockouts or or they really put the guy in the hold. So, you mean, when you're in there and you're in that style and you're working in Japan with some of those guys, they're really, you know, out for blood. They're really trying to, you know, take it to you, whether they're going to win, lose or draw. They're really, really trying to make it look as legit as possible. And Guido talks about what an experience he had kind of leading up to the UWFI and all the training that they made him go through And kind of the big tryout camp that they put him through. And it's just fascinating. And the most amazing part is that he said that was one of the best times of his career. It was so much different for him, but it was great. He had quite the life in Japan, quite the amazing matches over there. We talk about some of the Japanese absolute legends and icons that he was able to wrestle over there. Like Takata, like Kazushi Sakuraba, who was obviously a huge MMA legend as well we talk about takayama so many great guys that we talk about in uwfi and that was just such a fascinating point of the interview for me because i wasn't quite sure if he liked his run there or if he didn't and obviously we find out that it was possibly his high point in his career it was one of his most favorite things that he's ever done in the business so this is a really really fascinating interview this is really really good stuff It's one of those ones where me and you chat after it was over we you know Kind of smiled and was saying, "Man, that was a good one. Chalk that one up on, on the good pile. That was a lot, a lot of fun. And I just love his, you know, no bullshit answers, his straightforwardness. Love the way he kind of, you know, comes off because that tough guy demeanor is great. And you know, another little uh, small story just to throw out there: the Joe Pesci story with Paul Heyman and what kind of Heyman thought of Guido." And kind of that Joe Pesci role for the FBI and kind of what he thought. So that's a really cool part of the interview, a little tidbit for you to look out for as well. So Chad, I'm going to send it back over to you. And uh, this is quite the fun interview, I must say.
3: It's a great look inside the career of Little Guido. It's a great look inside a career that I don't think a lot of people know too much about. And that UWFI stuff is absolutely fascinating. And you really get a great look into what you have to do sometimes to become a successful professional wrestler. And this is a guy who left his family, left his life for three years to go over to Japan and really master that shoot style. And hey, he's the Sicilian shooter for a reason. And we want to thank Little Guido, a.k.a. WWE Cruiserweight Champion Nunzio, for coming on with us to promote Primal Conflict Wrestling's 10-year Anniversary event this coming Saturday in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. Head on over to primalconflictwrestling.com for more information on the event and to watch you look into Primal Conflict Wrestling. Kind of discover what's been going down in West Virginia for the last 10 years to see all the big names, all the big stars that have come through the territory and all the names that have gone on to do a lot of great things inside of the wrestling business. And now, obviously, Nunzio joining the pact of the primal conflict wrestling elite And we couldn't be any happier to get the word out about this huge 10-year anniversary event. And we want to congratulate Primal Conflict Wrestling on 10 years. And it's been a great year that we've been associated with them as well. So many more to come on both sides of the coin. But, John, as we kind of wrap it up here, I always like to say you never know who's going to be on the other side of the line. And obviously, Nunzio, yet again, another one of those examples. And we have so much great stuff coming in the next few episodes of the two man powership of wrestling. So please stay tuned. Spread the word. Get it out there. Obviously this Paul Heyman, CW Anderson stuff that John referenced is just it's absolutely mind-boggling to see what the show has been able to kind of accomplish. And this is an episode uh where we go from one end of the spectrum to the other with CW not being so kind in some regards and Nunzio putting Paul Heyman over like crazy. So Mr. Heyman if you do get a chance to hear this we obviously we respect you very much and we would love to uh, kind of hear your retort maybe on both sides the good stuff from Guido and some of the criticisms from Mr. C W Anderson but nonetheless thank you so much for listening and we want to get it on over to the interview so John hit him with a little bit of two man power trip of wrestling business and get it on over to a little Guido aka Nunzio
2: And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please visit our website, TMPTOfWrestling.com. That is TMPTOfWrestling.com. Subscribe to us on YouTube. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. While you're on iTunes, check out the feed for some legendary episodes featuring the living legend himself, Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, Ray Mysterio Jr., Jeffrey McDivitt, Brutus the Barber Beefcake, Mr. Wonderful Paul Onder, AJ Styles, and so many others. Also, while you're surfing the web, check out WrestlingInc.com. Yes, that is WrestlingInc.com. They are the number one wrestling news source out there so please check them out also while on the internet go to ProWrestlingKeeves.com yes ProWrestlingKeeves.com is your superstore if you are a super fan and you can please check out our page while you're there you can check out Tito Santana Paul Orndorff, Coco Beware, Magnum TA, Buff Bagwell and so so many others Follow along with the two-man power trip of wrestling in 2017 as we hit the road and we come to a town near you. April 22nd, we hit Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the Icons Collector's Fest. Then, May 19th and May 20th, we hit the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling Expo in Richmond, Virginia. Then, follow us to New Jersey as we hit Legends of the Ring in Monroe. So please follow along with the two-man power trip of wrestling in 2017, because you never know where we may land. And now, without any
3: further ado, a former two-time WWE Cruiserweight Champion and a former two-time ECW World Tag Team Champion. You may remember him as Damian Stone, little guido or as a member of the full-blooded italians but this is nunzio please enjoy
1: Joining us on the line tonight is a man who is an ECW original. He's a former two-time WWE Cruiserweight Champion and a two-time ECW World Tag Team Champion. He's been in every incarnation of the full-blooded Italians. He is the one and only Nunzio, a.k.a. Little Guido. Thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling.
4: Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Everybody says I was the, 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 the first full-blood Italian, but you know who the first real full-blood Italian was? People always think I always started that whole gimmick because I've had numerous partners through the years, probably like five or six, but you guys know who the first original full-blood Italian was?
1: Absolutely, J.T. Smith.
4: All right, there you go. Okay, yeah, you've done your homework because a lot of guys don't know that. A lot of guys always say, oh, you're the original. Gee, uh, uh, uh J.T. Smith is the original. He had the FBI gimmick in the early late '95, early '96, before I came there. And then when I came to ECW, I came as Damian Stone, and then um, Paul Lee changed cause he wanted not changed it, but he wanted me to be like a, a Joe Pesci character, you know, high strong, small, big mouth. And then he ended up putting us together. So, but you guys are correct. I can't even fool you. Good job. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, how could you forget J.T. Smith as a member of the uh, the Full-Blood Italians? One of my favorite nights uh, ever of ECW was November to Remember 96, where uh, the whole entire locker room seemingly came out to try to defeat Too Cold Scorpio, and it was J.T. Smith who was banned for about 60 days after losing to uh, Too Cold. So uh, how could we forget?
4: All right, you're right. That was even before me, I believe. I that was no, you were there. You were there. Was I
1: there to for that? Yes, yes, he tried to get in there, but uh, he took out J.T. Smith, he took out Hack Myers, I believe Devin Storm, and then Taz chased him out, so then it was... uh,
4: Wow, very good, Devin Storm, had the blast from the past, the crowbar.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, so that's what we like to do here on the two-man power trip of wrestling, and of course we have Nunzio on the show to promote Primal Conflict Wrestling's 10-year anniversary show known as Dominance. And you can head over to PCWWrestling.com for more information about the huge 10-year anniversary show featuring Nunzio, which I love. you got a full-blooded Italian headed down to the mountains of West Virginia. So uh, I'd love to see a little bit of that New York flavor come down and interject itself in the mountains of West Virginia, as I like to call it. But are you looking forward to coming down and seeing the fine folk of Primal Conflict Wrestling?
4: Absolutely. I've heard of this company many, many times. I was never invited to come down, and now finally on the 10th anniversary. Um, happy to be invited, and uh, we're going to come down there and have a good show and uh, have some fun. Can't say it's the first time I've been in the Virginia, but first time in this particular area. So, you know, it's good to uh, – coming to the shows on the independents is always good because when you wrestle like, with WWE ECW, even though it's a little smaller, it's hard to get up close and personal with the fans. And the independent, that's the great thing about it. You know, you go out there, you do your match at the mission, people get a chance to come up to you. So that's just the one good thing about uh, independent wrestling. So, um, yes, I'm looking forward to it, so checking out the people and, and having a good match.
1: And we can't wait to see it. It's going to be a four-corners four match, or as ECW would call it, a four-way dance. But what I love seeing about these independent shows now is independent wrestling kind of has a little bit of a... Uh, an old shot in the arm, uh, because wrestling is kind of, I mean, it's it seen somewhat of a resurgence. It's getting a little bit more of a, of a cult status with a lot of different new fans. But uh, a lot of indie shows trying to step it up a little bit, trying to up the production. You know, have you seen a change somewhat in the way indie wrestling has been portrayed over the last couple of years?
4: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I think places like... Um... You know, CZW, Ring of Honor, those were all smaller in the very beginning and then uh, and really turned up their product to become like a hardcore indie group and, and even maybe a little above that. And I see a lot of smaller other independent groups wanting to reach that level. So um, throughout the years on the wrestling independence, you know, you could definitely tell the tell the difference between those kind of places and, uh, and the smart crowds and regular fundraising, wrestling and stuff like that where sometimes the people are just coming for a good time and to, and to raise money. And then you have a lot of the other hardcore um, federations out there that are like the fans are coming and, and you need to really put, put yourself out there and put yourself on the line because they're coming to see a great product. So it actually, you know, it, all the groups together make the other groups work harder because they're all trying to move up the ladder. So having that type of competition, you know, like it, it, it does remind me what they say years ago there was territories. Now they say there's no territories. Well, back in the early 90s, you know, you're right, there was no more, ter- late 80s, early 90s, there was no more territories. Smoky Mountain went away. Then it was, you know, there was like, before that, of course, they had all the territories back in the early 80s and stuff like that. But I mean, for a little for a little while, th- th- all the territories got burnt out. Like we all know, Vince McMahon started invading a lot of the territories. But ever since, like, the close of, like, ECW and stuff, a lot of, like, I don't want to call them, you know, territories. But there's a lot of little independent groups out there now that are all over the place that a lot of guys can go work. You know, guys are working every weekend now. And now with the Internet and stuff, people are making a name for themselves on the indies, which is helping, helping, them, get to, helping them get to the big time. Now you can go wrestle a lot of indie shows, and you can get publicity, whether it's online or even people just talking about your match. You know, so I just I in the past like seven eight years, I don't want to say they're territories like they were back in the early '80s, but you know they are a lot of different little promotions that are trying to outdo each other, and and guys are getting work, and you can even tell because some promotions call you and they're like, oh I don't want you working for them, or I don't want you working for them. I find it, I mean, it never really happens to me, but I see it happen to a lot of these guys that are trying to make it with, and they might not be making so much money. They need to work in all the places they can, but some of the groups that are not paying these guys enough money are telling them they shouldn't work for all the promotion. That just shows the competition, but that just makes these promotions, you know, work a little harder and try to outdo the others. So I do, I do actually see, like, I want to say that territory is coming back in a way because there is a lot of places you can work right now. I don't know if that makes sense hey, that- to you.
1: Yeah, well, it makes perfect sense, and if you kind of think about it, it's almost what ECW was uh, in part at the beginning of ECW, because ECW was just kind of a part of that South Jersey, you know, Northern Philly independence scene, and it, you know, brought in its uh, local stars, it brought in its big names where it could, and then obviously, you know, when Paul Heyman and Eddie Gilbert joined the fray, it really started to, you know, as J.R. would say, business picked up, but... You know, that spirit of a lot of those uh, independent promoters now are kind of, you know, not a copy, but they're taking a little bit from what that ECW, you know, uh, we like well, to say... I would say uh, you
4: know, use- yeah, no, a copy is exactly it. You know, I, I would definitely say copy. But like you said about the early ECW, I actually started in ECW when it was, when, when Tony Stetson was there, Larry Winters was there. I don't know if you remember this. This is like early 1991, 92. We were doing the Aztec Club in Philly. We were doing Marketplace. Uh, the Sandman was there back then when he used to come out with the jumpsuit. I wrestled as Damian Stone. If you actually go on the network and you put Damian Stone, there's like two matches of me from, like, those early days. I don't know if you remember that, but the, I wrestled as Damian Stone there. Tommy Cairo is the one that got me into ECW. It was, like, 1991, and it was it was Eastern Championship Wrestling. It wasn't Extreme Championship Wrestling. It was way before Paulie was there, way before Eddie Gilbert was there. I was there when it was Eastern Championship Wrestling for a good two years, three years. Then I went to work for, in Japan as UWFI when when UWFI was around. And I did that for, like, two and a half to three years. When I came back in 96, I made friends with guys like Tommy Dreamer and Tad, and they were in uh, in the ECW now. But now, while I was away, it actually turned into extreme championship wrestling so when they had the turnover and Shane to the Bellbound in the early 94. But I wasn't there at that time. I was there in, like, 91, 92, and then went to Japan in late 92, I think it was, so 93, 94, 95, and then, um, and then came ECW. So was, I was actually there when, it was, when Todd Gordon ran it. He's the first guy I met. Tommy Cairo needed a guy to wrestle. We went to wrestle, and um, um, Tommy Cairo called me up. This is, I, I want to say 1991, 92. He's like, hey, this promotion in Philadelphia. It's um, called Eastern Championship Wrestling. Todd Gordon runs it. Uh, I got a tryout. He told me to bring somebody to wrestle with, so he brought me. We go down there. We wrestle. Uh, Todd Gordon's told him this story a hundred times. He could tell you the match, that, that where we were, it was in front of like uh, I want to say like um it was it was i would call it a fundraiser for like the handicapped kids disabled kids it was like a nice thing they were doing at the time and um and that's when todd gordon saw me and ever since after that match todd gordon started booking me in cairo and all his independent from most, all his shows out in that philadelphia area which was the chestnut cabaret um marketplace summer market street it was a it was a um sports bar on the market Street, and that's how I met all those guys, so when I came back in 96, I already knew Todd Gordon and all that, so that actually helped me get back there, Dreamer, and them introduced me to Paulie, so I don't know if you remember those days from when I did Damien Stone out there.
1: I see, to me, you know, it's, and obviously John and I, both East Coast guys, we we read about ECW, you know, where we were in Jersey, we read about ECW, but it wasn't until 96, where we were, or 95 for me, where we really started to see it, but if you throw the term ECW original out there, you really embody that in every sense of the word because being Damien Stone in those early days, you really are probably, maybe with the Sandman, like the original ECW originals.
4: Well, yeah, the original would be, uh, I mean, Hack Talk Sandman, talk about it all the time. In the early 90s when it was Eastern Championship Wrestling, this is before Taz, before Tommy Dreamer, before Paulie, before Eddie Gilbert. It was uh, Larry Winters. Tony Stetson, Johnny Hotbody, I don't know if you know any of these names, um, the, uh, Donnie Allen, they were all the guys that were in there before it was uh, Extreme Championship Wrestling. This is when Todd Gordon ran it. And uh, all those guys got faded out uh, when, when Paul Lee came in. He, they used those guys in the beginning, but they got faded out as time went on, and Sandman was the only one that stayed. I left on my own in the early 90s because uh, I got an opportunity in Japan with UWFI. So I went and did that. When that was over and I came back, Extreme Championship Wrestling turned into Extreme Championship Wrestling, and that was on. And, um, you know, they got in contact with me, and I met up with Dreamer, and they brought me down to Philly, and then I met Paul Heyman, where well, I already knew Todd Borden, though, for years. Todd Borden used me, you know, way back when. So, so as far as the originals, it's me and the Sandman are the two guys that were there since the early 90s. I did leave for a couple of years, but a lot of people don't know that.
1: Like, yeah, the original ECW <laughs> originals. And how can we forget the devious one, Donnie Allen? Come
4: on, that's... Uh, that's not Allen, by us
1: he here
4: on. Uh... <clears throat> okay, I, I mentioned him. Didn't I mention Donnie Allen?
1: Yeah, of course, yeah. We can't... We, can oh, we yeah, I did.
4: Come on. <laughs> I love Donnie Allen. Love him. He was one of the originals, too, but he's one of the ones that got faded out, too, as as things went on. You know, right. all those guys got faded out, yes. But those are all the original guys. If you want to take the originals, Tony Stetson, Larry Winters, and that's... That's when I got a chance to meet, like, you know, Jimmy Snooker was there, too, back then, Don Morocco. Um, you know, it was weird because I remember uh, it was, like, 1992 or 93, and it was we were in a sports bar called the Chestnut Cabaret, and there was about seriously 60 people there. And it was Jimmy Snooker versus Don Morocco in the main event. And not that they didn't draw, it wasn't, it, you know, just wasn't, you know the way it was, we were only drawing that amount of people anyway, but I'm like, wow, I remember going to Manchester Square Garden and watching Jimmy Snooker of course, jump off the cage in front of 20,000 people in Morocco now. You know, I'm watching them, whatever, 10 years later in this this little sports bar, you know, going out there and doing their match. It was like, it was actually a cool moment for me. It's not a, uh, my dog in the moment, you know, but it was like, wow, you know, in front of this, this, this crowd compared to what I watched, you know, whatever that was, 10, 11 years ago, you know. So I got a chance to meet all those guys back then. You know who else is down there? The Rockin' Rebel. Yes. And the reason why I nope. say him is I'm wrestling, I'm actually wrestling against him in Pennsylvania this Saturday.
1: Oh, wow, all right.
4: Yeah, I'm doing an indie show this Saturday uh, in Pennsylvania, and I'm wrestling against the Rockin' Rebel, who I know forever, Chuck.
1: Oh, there you go. Yeah, I haven't seen the Rockin' Rebel on the scene in quite a while, so that's... Uh... That's definitely another uh, blast in the past, but I'll hit you with one of these. So this is one of the cool things. We talked about some of your early independent days uh, late last year with a guest that I know you know very well. And uh, fortunately, he just suffered a very, very bad injury. But that's Rocky Jones, who is really, you know, i got to tell you, when you look back at a lot of the guests we've had on, he may have been my most underrated favorite guest that we had because the stories he has – Are absolutely unbelievable, and he was telling stories about you and your early days, uh, you know, wrestling Uh, on indies and seeing Taz in his early days and Dreamer and all these guys. And it was just somebody that I I wanted to throw out to you because uh, he's got such a great story. But he just completely just uh, had an awful injury uh, the last couple weeks. I just I just just got off the phone
4: with him. I just got off the phone with him an hour ago. I just hung up with him. I've been talking to him every two days because of – I just called him about probably like 6 o'clock. But I've been talking to him ever since the injury, which, um, you know, I'm like, Rocky, you're crazy. Man's 62 years old, still looks great, and he's squatting 400 pounds. I'm like, "What what the hell are you doing squatting 400 pounds? I almost ripped his pinky off, too. He blew out both oh his gosh. quads and went with his pinky off and um, just spoke to him a little while ago. I will tell him you guys said hello because I didn't know that you, you even knew him. I didn't even mention I was doing this interview today. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to see him uh, next week. I'm going to take him a visit because he can't leave his house. He's kind of like stuck in his house and everything. But yeah, Rocky Jones trained me. He, him, Gino Caruso, and the Kodiak Bear were the first three guys I actually met uh, in, you know, at the wrestling school up in Parsippany. So, um, yeah, those guys had a, a big influence on my my career and my, my, my wrestling life. And, um, yeah, Rocky was great. Rocky Rocky was very, uh, I think, underestimated. Like, he wrestled in, in the early 80s with all those top guys, all those top guys. And, um, you know, he chose to lead the business himself. Like, he was having kids, and they were booking him all over. I don't know if he told you the story. But he was wrestling back in the early days with the Samoans and Hulk Hogan and oh, yeah. all those guys. And he was on mm-hmm. TV. All He was on TV, you know. And then, um, then he was having—he started having a couple of kids, and um, you know, Pat Patterson had him booked in all these towns. And Rocky's like, "Hey, I'm having my firstborn. You know, I want to be home for that." And they promised him he could be home for that. And then, when the time came, um, you know, Pat Patterson's like, "Well, we need you over here. We need you over here. We need you over here." And Rocky made a decision, and uh, you know, he still to this day he doesn't regret his decision because he has you know two beautiful daughters, um, and he decided not to go on the road. And he stopped wrestling for a few years. And he says, and he'll tell you this himself, he says possibly could have hurt him down the line. He thinks so, because when he was ready to come back, the business was in a different direction, and he was out of touch for a little while. So, you know, that was, um, so he didn't, you know, he did great in his career, but, um, you know, he chose to step away for a little while to to have a family. I don't know if he got, got into that with you guys. Probably not.
1: We went to it a little bit. We talked about when he stepped away, uh, yeah, and like uh, 87, 88, when they uh, they offered him to come back and he decided, you know, it was more important to be with family and they gave him that the booking sheet and he said he could. They would, he said I think it was like Kansas and really like out there in the Midwest where it just would have been obviously impossible to get back. But when we were talking about, you know, your early days, what we found to be so fascinating about it is, yeah, he's a guy that not a lot of people know, but he had such a great background. Now, you know, I like to look at your group of guys who were kind of, you know, coming on the scene in the you know, early 90s, mid-90s, as really learning from the old guard. And then what does that bring for you to then teach the kids that are coming up now that you guys, you got to see, you know, a guy like Rocky, okay, he worked with Hogan, he worked with Mill Mascaris, he worked with Bruno, you know, Bruno, you know, oversaw a lot of his training. What do you then bring to somebody uh, getting into the business now after learning from a guy with such a vast background like a Rocky you know, and kind of translated into 2017 to now where wrestling is, just, well, that you was, know, that, a pure entertainment
4: was, that's product. A, well, that's a good thing. The, the, the good thing about me is, like, when I started wrestling, I got trained by Rocky and Bear. So they taught me the old school style of wrestling, uh, how to tell a story, slow it down, take your time, be a heel, and a be a baby face. And then, so I learned that before the times change. And then when I got into ECW, yes, they we weren't doing that. When, when it well In the early days of ECW, yes, it actually was, when I'm telling you about the Damien Stone days with Tommy Cairo and Tony Stetson, that's the way they worked. But when we came back and when it became Extreme Championship Wrestling, yes, um, a lot of, a lot of on-TV storytelling was gone. It was kind of like a lot of high-flying. They brought in the luchadors, and, you know, that's when the business evolved and changed. So I was able to go from learning how to do it the old-style way I always knew I'd do that, to putting that on hold because that wasn't fitting in the ECW. But I did learn, the good thing about it was when I went to, when ECW closed down and I went to WWE, they still use that, believe it or not. That's still the old old school, you know, tell a story, shine a baby face, get some heat, you know. They still use that, and it was easy for me to adapt to that. Compared to some guys, I just want to say, who never really got trained that way. There's so many guys out there that don't train the right way, don't teach them how to tell a story, just want to take their money and just let them come in and let them live their dream and do a bunch of flips and don't really try to teach these guys. Sometimes it takes these guys to get on the independence and then have veterans say, hey, listen, that's great. You could do all that stuff. But instead of going out there doing 500 flips in three minutes, you could do seven flips over the course of a nine-minute match, put them in the right place. It's not, it's not going out there doing 100 things. It's doing the right amount of things. It's doing a few less things but doing more at the right time and telling the story. It's great you could do 82 moves in a match, but you're better off doing seven moves and, and spacing them out. You know, so a lot of guys that got in the business late and didn't get trained the right way. I don't blame the guys. Sometimes it's the people that are training them. There's a lot of tr- the problem now is when I was when I started, it wasn't like you get turn a computer on, hit a button, and it's five thousand wrestling schools show up. There's there's great guy wrestling schools out there now. I know a bunch of them, and some of them there's guys that that don't even care about their, their wrestlers, They're trying to take people's money and they're not even training them right. Some of the schools, the guys don't even know how to work themselves. I'm not saying all mm-hmm. of them. There's a lot of great schools. There's one up at Kevin Knight up in Patterson, uh, a good old school worker. He has a great wrestling school. Up in Parsippany, that's a good wrestling school. You know, there's a lot of still good ones, but unfortunately there's a lot of ones out there that the guys are just taking the guy's money and not training him the right way. And then when these guys get on the show, other people watch them and say, oh, this guy don't know how to work at him. He does all these flips. Well, nobody wants to you take your time out and talk to the guy and tell the guy and try to help the guy instead of just dog the guy. You know, that happens a lot because everybody's out there for themselves too. Everybody's out there trying to bury each other. So, you know, listen, it's a crazy business. And you, everything you get, you've got to fight tooth and nail. So I was lucky enough to get involved at the, at the early times with Rocky Jones, Gino Caruso, Cody, where they actually taught me the old school way because that, only, that was the only way back then. They really didn't have the other stuff just yet. You know, and then, then the business evolved and changed. And, you know, it's always going to change. And it's keep changing, you know. So I, was, I, I consider myself very lucky.
0: The thing that's so fascinating to me about your career is you know, the beginning trajectory of kind of, like you said, you were in ECW for a little bit, but how did you get into the UWFI in Japan? Because that fascinates me a lot because that was more of a quote-unquote shoot fight and stuff like that. So how did you get in there?
4: i was, I was going to um i was doing you know, I was actually doing the the E wrestling and doing a bunch of local shows I was working for Mario Savoli Tommy Savoli, and I was training at the e c p w school, which wasn't east p c p w Gino Crusoe up in Parsippany. and um the, uh, this this company uWFI was looking for guys that wrestle. You know, so they were reaching out to a lot of wrestling schools. So Gino Caruso, somebody called Gino school and left a message. So Gino came to me and said, Hey, listen, I was I I wrestled amateur. I was captain of my wrestling team in high school. So, you know, I wrestled all my life. That style. That's why I was in corporate amateur wrestling into my matches. But so I already I knew how to wrestle. So Gino called me and told me about this tryout in Japan. I didn't even know what shoot wrestling was at the time. I didn't even know what the submissions was, you know, I never really seen it back then. So um I called them up, and, um, you know, they offered to they fly me in to, uh, to Tennessee. They wanted to take a look at me, and I didn't even know what I was going for yet. I had no idea what, what I was doing. So I'm like, all right, yeah, cool. This sounds good. You know, I knew nothing about UWFI. I knew nothing what they do. So, so I get there, and um, they asked me, did I ever wrestle before? I said, yeah. I told them, gave them my background and everything. So um, I go up there. There was a guy up there named Billy Scott, Gene Lydic, uh, a couple of Japanese guys, so they said, you know, get in there and wrestle around with these guys. So I get in there. We start wrestling around, wrestling around, and everything's going all right. And they weren't doing no submissions or anything. I didn't know anything about it. So then they stopped the rats, and they see, you know, I was able to hold my own amateur style, just wrestling. Um, so then they're like, hey, do you know anything about submissions or choke holes? And I'm like, no, nah, I don't know anything about that. They said, oh, try it. Go against these guys, see what you can do. So I go out there, and it was like a totally different ball game. These guys were making me tap left and right. You know, object of amateur wrestling is to not go more than 45 degrees, and that's all I ever did. Well, the object of what they were doing is to go more than 45 degree angles to the point of breaking where you're tapping out. So then he started shooting on me, which I didn't even know what shooting was back then. So... After I wrestled Billy Scott, they said, I'll take a break. So I'm like, God damn it. What the hell's going on here? So they get me in there with Gene Lydic. Same thing. I do 10 minutes with him, and he's killing me. I'm tapping out left and right. I'm just like, I'm almost dying. I'm like, get me the fuck out of this place. I "I don't even know what the hell's going on here. So I come back the next day. Come back the next day. Come back the next day. My triad was over. So, um, you know, they thanked me and everything. And um, so there was 15 of us, not just me. There was 15 of us all together. I went home. They called me back and they said, listen, they said, you know, uh, we would like you to come back for another seven days. And you know, I was like, uh, I don't know, man. So, you know, I'm not really into that. I said, I don't know really what you guys are doing down there. They said, well, I we want to show you a few tapes. you come down. So they brought me back down there by myself. Uh, I was the only one they invited back out of all 14 people. And they started showing me the tapes of um, UWFI and showing me what it was all about. You know, like back then, I didn't realize it was a shoot work, which your match is basically a shoot. Finish the finish is a work. So if you go in there and you're supposed to do nine minutes of shoot wrestling on somebody and you're supposed to go over, well, if you don't fight back, they'll kick your ass for seven and a half of those minutes and then, maybe, and then put you over. So UWFI was a work shoot, but it was very highly protected back. So they didn't tell me. When they showed me the tapes, they made me they made it sound like it was, it was just, oh, this is, a, this is real. So they said, we want you to stay here and train with us and this and that. So I said, all right. I said, all right. So they sent me back home. I get my stuff. I moved to Tennessee. They, they get me a, a place to live. They get me, they pay for my house. They pay for my board. My job was to go train five days a week from, uh, eight in the morning till four in the afternoon. Um, and they paid for my apartment. They paid for everything. So, um, so I, I'm thinking they're going to teach me. So I get in the ring, start shoot wrestling with all the guys they brought in from Japan. And, and they just kicking my ass and they're just beating the fuck out of me. and come back day of the day and, they're not teaching me anything. They're just beating the shit out of me. So I did that for like two months. So finally one day I go there, and they just were shooting on me, choking me out. And I'm like, you know what, fuck this. I said, and I went up to the, one of these guys. I said, you guys you guys ain't fucking teaching me nothing. I said, I'm getting my ass kicked. Out. I said, I don't know what the fuck these guys are doing. They're fucking arm bars and, food, you know, chokeholds. I said, you're not teaching me fucking shit. I said, I'm fucking out of here. So I start to walk off. Billy Scott, who if you ever talk to Billy Scott, he'll always tell you. I always had tears in my eyes. I was like, fuck like fucking motherfuckers. I'm done. So I start walking out. Billy I said, no, 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 come back. I'm like, fuck that, Billy. I said, these fucking guys are killing me. I said, I'm here like a rabbi. They ain't teaching me shit. They said, all they're doing is just fucking beating on me. He said, no, 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 come back, come back. I said, no, no, I'm not. So I fucking get, get my car. I go home. They call me the next day, and they want to have a meeting with me. They want to talk to me. So I go back to the dojo. They told me to bring my stuff. I didn't even bring my stuff. I, just, I come in They said, oh, where's your stuff. I said I don't have it. I said, I'm going home. They said, "You want me to come here? What do you want?" They said, I, I said, "I I'm done." They said, "No, no, no. We want you to stay here. We want to teach you. You know, we're going to teach you and, and we're going to make you learn. We're going to send you to Japan every three weeks." And I'm like, "What?" They're like, "Yeah, yeah. You stay here. We're going to make. We want to make things right." And then I found out later on that they did that for me because they wanted to see how long I was going to stay. I stayed for like two and a half months, and that was five days a week of get my ass kicked. They were just seeing how long I was gonna stay there and if I was gonna break or not, which I had no idea at the time. That's what Billy Scott explained to me afterwards, he's like, don't worry, he goes, things are gonna be different. And ever since that day, they weren't shooting on me, now they were teaching me how to be like them. And I started training with them, and then we were doing live matches, but then they were taking it easy on me because they didn't want to hurt me. And then I started going to Japan, and I did that for, for two years. And that's my, that was my UWF uh, story. That's a true story.
0: It's amazing the the Japanese and the culture and that kind of like old school tendencies of them. Like they're going to basically be really, really tough on you and really hard on you. They want to see you break. They want to see how far they can push you. And, and then they bring you into their culture.
4: Right. Which I knew nothing about that at the time. it just thought I was very competitive. And, you know, I, my, the amateur wrestling wasn't a problem. So they knew they had, they didn't have to teach me how to wrestle. But you, you can't put a wrestler in there with a guy that can wrestle just as good as me and knows all the submissions and has been doing it for 10 years you know, compared to a guy that didn't even, I didn't even know what an armbar was, you know. So, but I learned later on that's what the story was all about. And then when, when we went to Japan, they made me think I was doing a shoot match. Now, they made me think it was real the whole way through. So I flew to Japan thinking I was in a shoot. I'm in Shin Yokohama the first night thinking I, I go there. They bring you in. I had one match. They bring you in. For, you're there for five days. They bring you in. They let you stay there. God forbid. These guys hear what I'm saying right now, but everybody knows the work now. But believe me, if I was talking like this years ago, uh, they'll probably be coming to my house ready to kill me. But it's, a, it's out in the open now anyway. So they, they my first match, they, 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 when I started training, I trained for like six months, and they were teaching all submissions, and they made it sound like I was having a real shoot match out there. Now, I had a lot of amateur matches, but I never had a shoot match. So I thought I was going against one of the kickboxing Japanese guys and blah, blah, blah. So they had me believing it the whole time. So I get to Japan. They had me in tag match. It was me and Takata, who Takada's a champion. You can see this match on, online. It's on the internet. Me and Takada versus Billy Scott and Yamazaki. So I'm thinking it's a real match, right? So I get there. They say, oh, you got two days off. They put me in a hotel. They leave me alone. Nobody bothers me. It's like 12 o'clock at night. The second day in, I get a banging on my door. I'm like, what the fuck is that? So I get up. It's Billy Scott. It's a couple of Japanese guys that drive you around. They said, get your stuff, come with me. And I'm like, what? They're like, come with me. So I get in the car, they take us to the do they take me to their dojo. So I'm like, what the fuck are they doing here? So I go in the dojo and all the guys are there. So they say to me, they say, Listen, this this is they say, you know, UWFI is a work, work shoot. They say, Your match tomorrow is a work. He goes, finish work. He goes, match very strong style shoot. So I'm like, alright. So they introduced me to that and I met Dakota and the guy that was wrestling and we went over the finish of the match only. But the deal was with them was because they were so protective of the business, they would never, the fans, they were drawing at that time 20,000 people, 15,000 people. They never wanted the fans to catch any of the guys together. So they would bring, now obviously the next time I went back to Japan, I knew the deal. I was going to the dojo at 12 o'clock at night to go over to finish other matches. But they were bringing all the guys to the dojo in the middle of the night so no fans would catch them being together or... Because they knew, some of the hardcore fans knew where the dojo was and stuff like that. And they would be fans and they would like be outside to see who was hanging around, you know? So that's the way they used to do it. They used to bring us to the dojo in the middle of the night. Now, then my second time there, I knew the drill. It's just they never told, just like when they brought me in, they beat me up for three months before telling me it was, uh, you know, they were going to teach me and then not even telling me it was uh, work. They never told me it was a work until I got to Japan that night. And then after that, obviously, I knew. And then they kind of accepted me and their family a little more, and I became friendly with all the Japs. But the match was a shoot, because even though you were friends with these Japs, they don't want to dishonor their people. So even if you're going to go over on them, they will beat the shit out of you for eight, nine minutes, and then put you over in the end. So if you don't learn how to defend yourself, if you don't learn how to fight back, they'll just drop you. And how many times there's matches where a guy's supposed to go over, and they get kicked in the face and get knocked out, and then the match just ends that way? Well, sometimes I think these Japs... Japanese don't say Japs they wanted to do that they wanted to beat the shit out of YouTube but you know that was fun though that was a different story and I was getting paid good too <laughs> so that that's how the way UWF um, worked now I don't know about pancreas and all that but you know years later like I always kept it the quiet they always forbid me oh don't ever tell anybody I used to come home I used to not tell everybody I used to tell everybody it was a shoot because that's what I had to do you know um and then as time went on I think it got exposed, the, the biz, you know, the houses started dropping because people started to see sometimes, you know. That only can go on so long. But that is the true UWF style. But a lot of those guys went into real fighting. Kanahare, um, Dakota, I don't know if you know any of these guys. A lot of these guys got into real fighting. Um yeah. kind of Gary Albright was there with me, I mean I mean he passed away now. I love Gary. He was a great guy. Tom Burton, he passed away. Um but that was the story of UWF. I don't know if you ever knew it was a work or not, but it was a work.
0: Yeah, it's awesome to kind of see, like Takada, who obviously main evented Pride, which obviously was the biggest uh, MMA promotion yep. for a while there, semi from Japan. But it's interesting to see from UWFI, it's like, oh man, is probably going to be the best, you know, real shoot fighter, but he wasn't. His student, uh, Kazushi Sakuraba, ended up being the best, and you had a chance. The best, yep. Yeah, he was... I wrestled one Sakuraba. Credits. Yeah, how was Sakuraba. that? Uh, what did you say? What was it like wrestling Sakuraba?
4: Oh, he was he was great, but like, our match was a was a work shoot. But if you go online, Google James Stone. I wrestled in Japan as James Stone, because when I started, when, when I was going to Japan, I was Damien Stone, but, but since Japan, they wanted it to be a shoot, they didn't want you using your stage name. So they wanted me to use James Maritato. Well, the Japanese couldn't pronounce my real last name. So when I went to Japan, they kept my first name and they dropped my last name and they kept my stage stone. My last name is Maritato. They couldn't pronounce that. So that's how I got the name James Stone. But if you Google James Stone um, versus Sakuraba, James Stone, Dakota versus Billy Scott, Yamazaki, these matches will pop up. You know, so that's how I ended up uh, doing that. But Saga Robin, you know, after after a couple of years, I became like real friendly with them. It just took a lot, real time, a lot of time to get in. Then you start going out, drinking with them, partying with them. You know, it become like a family because you're working in the company for a couple of years. You know, it's just that people that keep you on the outside and they bring you in slowly. They they don't they don't let their guard down till they get to know you. And then they realize that I was sticking around and you know I was making everybody look good, the usual, and. Um, history from there with UWF. Best times of my life. It was the first time I ever got a chance to actually leave home and live somewhere else. They paid for my apartment. They paid for my meals. They paid me for training during the week, and then they paid me when I went to Japan, too. So it was a great full-time living. You know, And I was freaking 23 years old, 24 years old, something like that. So a lot of stories, a lot of things people don't know about me.
0: That is that's some interesting stuff. I definitely wanted to talk about that. It's so cool. Looking back at UWFI, with I, lo- I mean I love Takata is awesome, but obviously Sakuraba is legit tough and probably one of the greatest MMA fighters of all time. If you really look at him, I mean he killed all the Gracies. Uh, he beat Rampage Shaq. and he beat Vitor for I mean his uh, resume is pretty amazing. And then you also got in there with uh, Takayama, who's a big that was, just, that was my next guy. Yep, that was my next guy. I was gonna imagine he
4: was like six foot two. He became a huge star in like New Japan and stuff like that. Yeah, obviously yeah. I wrestled him too. He was my second match. He was my second match I ever did. That was my first one with that tag match I did, and my second match was versus Takayama. He was like six foot three, and he was freaky-looking dude. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. he did very well. He did very well in the uh, shoot style, but he also adapted to the Ameri- uh, you know, Japanese-American style wrestling you know, and became a big star. And, and, you know, a few of them did. Yoji Anju, became, he got into American style wrestling, too. In the very beginning, they were very much against American style type pro wrestling. Like when I first started going up there and they started teaching me and I they, and I knew it was a, um, uh, I knew it was at work. They're like, they didn't want me taking back bumps. They're like, no, 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 no American style. They, like you get kicked in the head. They want you to drop like you got kicked in the face and knocked out. They don't want you taking a back bump because that looks too American style pro wrestling. You know, mm. if somebody, if you're in a, you're in a shoot and somebody kicks you in the, the side of the head and you get knocked out, you don't take a back bump, a professional wrestling back bump. You know, you kind of just crumble and fall. And that's, you know, that's what they taught us then because that's they wanted it to be believed as a shoot. And don't get me wrong, a lot of those those guys that were there, the Japanese guys, they're all they were all tough. You know, Takato was good too. But I think when he started to get into the fights and stuff, you know, he got exposed a little bit. Yes. You know, he's protected in his company because it was a work. You know. So it's like anything. You know. But I'm not a the guy, the guy did me a good life for a couple of years and you know, probably whipped my ass. <laughs>
0: Did you ever have any real MMA fights? Because I read that you had a couple, but I couldn't see you know, if they were legit or if they were work shoots.
4: I only had one. I fought one guy, and um, I did a uh, match with Steve Nelson. Did you ever see that match?
0: No. Mm-hmm.
4: I did a match with Steve Nelson. It was like a tough man contest. Dan Seven was on it. Uh, that was my only one that was real, and I did a, um, I did one versus a kickbox. So, and that was towards my end then. That was in Amarillo, Texas. And uh, I was already in, I was getting into ECW, I was done with UWF, but people wanted to bring me in for like tough man contests and shit, and I just wasn't into it, I was ready to get into pro wrestling, I was ready, after those few years of Japan and stuff, even though it was a work, practices were a shoot, matches were 90% shoot, I felt like it was all real. You're, you're training in practice like the match is real, and that's just the way they did it out there. So after like a few years, you know, I didn't even want to do it anymore. So now, I I would say out of all the matches I had, I I, I know for a fact I had two real matches. That was it. And I just wasn't into it, you know. I'd rather be in American-style pro wrestling. and Thank God I did that because that led to my WWE and I traveled the world with those guys and had a lot of fun. When you came back...
0: Oh, I'm sorry.
4: No, go ahead. That's it. I
0: was going to say, when you came back, was it, Weird, kind of going from Japan back, you know, to the states. Was it kind of um, taking getting used to?
4: Well, yeah, it definitely took getting used to. But when I came back, I went to actually Puerto Rico for a week, and um, and then um, and when from there, I went to uh, I saw I met Pablo Marquez out there, who um, who was getting into ECW. And you know, this is a part of the story I left out before. When I saw him out there, he's like, "Hey, I'm a, I'm with Tommy Dreamer and Taz and." And Sam, man, I'm like, oh, man, tell those guys that I said hello. I just happened to say that to him, you know, because I really didn't know what was going on out there. And the next time I saw Pablo, oh, no, Pablo called me up. He's like, yo, I told Taz and them, you, you come, you're back from Japan, and they all said, and Dreamer, and they said to come down to Philly. They want to introduce you to Paulie. I'm like, oh, really? And Pablo Marquez lived in Queens, and that's how that actually happened. That's how I went back. That's when I went down there and met those guys. So, um, and then went right into the ECW style. So, no, really, it's like kind of like riding a bike. You don't forget how to do it. You don't have to do it for many years, and you just get back into doing it. But when I, when I went there, when I, I, they put me in a comical stable because, like, when I went there, Taz was doing the shoot fighting gimmick, if you remember. He was doing it. So when I came in, they didn't use that background. In the very beginning, years later when Taz left, they, 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 when I became a little more serious, they would say I was trained by Billy Robinson because I was. I was trained by Billy Robinson in Japan. I didn't bring him up, but when he was one of my trainers. When, when I was going to that uh, in Tennessee, when I was kicking my ass, he was the coach there. I didn't know who he was at that time, but he was the coach, and I found out who he was. And then I read up on him, and I'm like, wow, this is, you know, Billy Robinson. And I became good friends with Billy. So, um, yeah, he was my coach back then. And, I and yeah, but they, was it wasn't it was easy. It was easy to make the transition. Oh, going back to Taz. So when I first went in there, they wouldn't let me do the shoot fight gimmick, even though I came from Japan and I was doing that shit there because Taz was doing that gimmick already. That that was him. He was a human suplex machine. He did the amateur wrestling submissions. That's why and that's why I wasn't able to do that. But they I was happy enough to be put in the with the FBI and do all that, you know.
0: Now, the FBI is an interesting thing, and obviously, you know, they bring you back as Little Guido, which, uh, you know, with this PC world, I don't know uh, if, it's, it's, you know, uh, people would probably complain, oh, my God, his name is Little Guido. But I love that you said before with, the, you know, Heyman looking and he wanted you to do the, uh, the Joe Pesci style. What was kind of like the the introduction to ECW when you met Paul?
4: Well, the first time I met Paul, I I go they bring me in, it was in... Um I forget where I think we were Reading, Pennsylvania. It was like a house show, and I go up to him and, I say, and um, I, you know I go in and I see Palm and everybody, and they say, hey, "Come over to Paul's over there, so I go to Paul. I go, "Hey, how you doing? I'm Damien His first words to me he goes, "I know who you are." Now, Paul knows who everybody is. Paul probably knew that he used to watch me because ECW was on TV when it was Eastern Championship Wrestling. you know he you know he probably knew it from them, but I didn't know that he knew who I was. You know, Um, Paulie also ended up living like 20 minutes from me and still does. He lives right over here in Scarsdale. I live in Rockland County. I'm 20 minutes away from him. So when we started talking there, we actually started traveling to the shows together, me, him and Tommy Dreamer. I was friends with Tom. I used to go to his, I would go to Dreamer's house in Yonkers, then leave my car there. I would go with Tom. Me and Tom would go pick up Paulie and then we would go to the shows. And then when we started flying out, it was the same thing. I would leave my car at Tom's. Go pick up Paulie. I me and Paulie would fly to the town, which we started like flying it around. You know, so um, I ended up traveling with Paul a lot. But that was my first time I ever met him. I introduced myself to him, and he goes, "I know who you are," which I had no idea that he knew who I was. He knew of me. He didn't know who I was, and he always liked me, Paul. And I worked as Damien Stone for like a month or two, and he's always saying to me, oh, "You remind me of Joe Pesci. You remind me of Joe Pesci. I want you to be this little fight." He, he was talking about it, talking about it, talking about. It. One time, I showed up in Lost Battalion Hall, and they were, they were um, introducing Devon Dudley. They were doing TV, it was Devon Dudley's debut. So they had JT Smith go out there, and um, yeah, supposedly got hit with a frying pan. And um, he heard that he had had a cousin named Little Guido. And I came out. No, he couldn't remember me. So he was in the ring talking, I come out and go, JT, it's me, we're cousins from back in Sicily, and he's looking at me, he's like, we're cousins, I'm like, yeah, we're cousins, we're family, me and you, we're the FBI, that's how they it's on TV, you can go online and watch it, because it was a TV tape, and it was in Lost Italian Hall, and then we hugged and everything, and then all of a sudden, out came Devon Dudley, and started beating us up with chairs, and then out came Bubba Ray Dudley, and then he was beating them up with chairs, you know, I don't know if you remember that, but that was a long time ago, that was my first match as Little Guido, um, that's how we introduced it. It was in Lost Battalion Hall. JT Smith came to the ring doing his spiel. I came in trying to convince him that I was his, uh, his cousin from Italy, and he didn't remember. Because um, and then then out came Devon's debut. That was Devon's debut as well.
0: It's always funny looking back at some of the you know like the way the guys get put together. Like especially the FBI. Obviously it's supposed to be more comical It's you and JT Smith. But I love the fact that Tracy Smothers, who is from I believe Tennessee or you know obviously somewhere down south, uh, gets added into the group and he's with you. What were your thoughts when Tracy Smothers, your Italian partner, known as a great worker, but not known as uh, anything near Italian or you know anything uh, northern? Well, I never really had I never really had an Italian partner in the
4: game group besides Big Sal Graziano, so that was actually great. You, you want to talk about learning again? I like I said I learned the old style way before. But when when those guys came in, you know, if you go to a lot of the house shows, ECW wasn't all about blood and guts. There was a lot of good wrestling on the shows. And when they came in and they brought Tommy Rich in and J.T. Smith quit, he left. He moved to Richmond, Virginia. I had nobody. They brought those two guys in. Paulie's like, hey, we're going to put these guys with you. You're the new FBI. When we would go to the ring, they really taught me like the Southern style of wrestling, which was basically what I already knew. But they really taught me how to, like, grasp the crowd and take it easy. A lot of our matches weren't, like, blood and guts. We were actually doing wrestling matches. And then on TV, we'd go out there and get hit with the guitars and all that shit, get put through tables, yes. But a lot of the times on on the house shows and and stuff like that, we were always doing the, the, the regular tag matches. You know, and then they gave us the belts in 97, and we did all those hardcore matches too because they gave me and Tracy the tag team championships, beat New Jack and Coronas, and then, you know, obviously we had to do that stuff. But, you know, being with Tracy and Tommy taught me a lot. I still get a chance to wrestle with Tracy. I just wrestled with him a couple of months ago in a tag. Um, In in, Louisiana, I want to say. No, I flew to Chicago, South Bend, Indiana. This is only about a month ago. And then me and him did a lot of other stuff in uh, in Cleveland a couple times for uh, John Thorne. Um, so I still get to see Tracy around, but, you know, I always love the gimmicks. You know, the gimmick matches were the best. You know, we, they use us as utility men. Utility men get a long run. That's why I was in WWE for eight years, you know, ECW for six years. You know, sometimes it's being good being a utility man to get sometimes a longer run when they try to push you to the moon. And if it doesn't work out, you know, they can't do nothing else with you, you know. So my, I knew my role; it was what it was, you know.
0: Absolutely, you, play, you played it very, very well. And you just kind of speak to that just for a minute, like being the utility man. Kind of what what you know, like? What is that role? So, you know, you used to play in a role. You used to play in a role. Is that basically any spot they put you in, you're going to hit it out of the park?
4: That's exactly what that means. You you could be comical. You could be serious. You could be, you know, you you could do anything. You could be like ECW. I mean, when even in WWE during Christmas time, they dress me up as an elf. You know, they dress as Santa Claus. You know, it's like anything they need. If you need to go out there and get squashed out, you you could go out there and make a guy that can't wrestle at all look semi-good. You can go out there with a guy like Ray Mysterio, which I had, and go out there and have a great match with him or a Tajiri. You know, you, you're like a, a, you're more or less like a go-to guy. It's not just me, Steve. You no, know, Steve and he was a great utility guy. You know, Barry, um, uh, Barry Horowitz, he was a great utility guy. These are guys that can go out and have good matches with anybody. You know, and, and the company needs guys like that. They need guys like that. You know, so that's exactly what a utility man. So where they feel that could, you know, do whatever it is. You can get squashed out in two minutes. You can go ten minutes. You could do five minutes. You could go with the great Khali and take a great choke slam, Shit like that.
0: It is great that, you know, you get those kind of wrestlers and it's great to see, you know, kind of go back to East a little bit, but it's great to see you being able to kind of be a little bit jokey with obviously Tracy others, or then get in there with Super Crazy or have a three-way dance with Crazy and Tajiri and kind of, you know, knock it out of the park in that way. So it's always good to see, especially you, you mean you play a different role and, and succeed in each role. Is it kind of weird like that you and Tracy had like such good chemistry and then you know, the next night you can have a three way dance with uh, Crazy and Tajiri and, and basically pop the whole building?
4: Yeah, well yeah, I guess it's just uh, I guess it's just learning different you know, learning different styles. Like you know, I could do American style, I could do Japanese style, I could do um work with super crazy which is um Lucho Libre style. You know, I mean that that's that helps you, you know, you could you're you're diverse in many ways. You could work with many different guys. There's some people that can't that can't, you know, they only could work with one Guy or certain guys and have great matches, and everybody else they have shitty matches. You know, I, just, I, I consider myself lucky in a way. You know, I think mean, I really believe in wrestling. You got to in order to be a good professional wrestler. Number one, you really need to be a wrestling fan. I grew up watching it. You know, you got to really love it, and you got to you've got to be ready to to go out there and work for free and, and really try to make it. Some guys that are out there that uh, fall right into it and then they have fun for two years and they're just big and stuff. And then after two years, they're like, oh, I don't want to do this no more. And then they quit. There's people that don't have a passion for it. And some guys can never learn. because They never learn how to be a pro wrestler. Kurt Angle, I think he adapted great from never doing it. And he wasn't a huge fan of it, but he adapted tremendously from amateur style into a great, great professional wrestler. You know, and, and Brock Lesnar did the same, but I did Kurt really, out of all the shooters that came into Dan Severn, the Shamrock, the, the um, you know, Brock, Kurt, I did Kurt. Did, I mean, they, they all did very well, but I mean, I did Kurt really adapted the best out of all of them. You know, and I actually got lucky. I wrestled all of them. I wrestled Brock. I wrestled Kurt. Um, I never wrestled Dan Severn. Two out of three.
0: Hmm. With Kind of going back to, like, ECW just for a second, I just wanted to touch on the the effect that ECW obviously had. I mean, it's kind of long-lasting. People still talk about it. You're affectionately known as an ECW original, things like that. Can you just explain, like, what it was like at that point with ECW and, you know, the crowds and, and the fans just being crazy and kind of just kind of taking the wrestling world by storm for a short period of time there?
4: Well, I mean, who ever knew you were going to be part of history? ECW, I think, made history. They say it changed the business. Like, well, I was there, and we were doing it. You never realized it was going to be history. People still talk about it to this day. It, it was the first time I ever got you know you're in such small buildings, and the crowd is so passionate, and what they chant, and and who, who they want, and you know it, it was great. But it was just weird because you know it, it was happening. It's not like I ever watched that happen before, and then was part of it it's like I was there when it, it started to happen and then all of a sudden it was happening. And then when I wasn't there anymore, other companies actually had that little tight feeling that you go to now and you could hear the, the ROHs and stuff like that. So it was, it, it, was, it, was great, it was great to be there during that time. But like I said, it wasn't like I was one of those guys that have, say, never watched, got involved in business in, say, 99 and grew up watching etw and and that, that hardcore crowd and then one day was in the middle of the ring with that. I, you know, I started watching it when there was, there was no ECW, just the big WWE, WCW, not really passionate fans. You know. And the, the thing is, too, is sometimes when you're in those small buildings with 1,500 to 2,000 people up on top of you, it's different than being in a building with 20,000 people. You're not getting that same feel sometimes because the building is just so damn big. You know I, don't know, I don't know if I'm explaining it right, but I don't know it was just um, you know it was just it was great to be part of like I said it, it was something that I think as far as that that type of atmosphere I never seen before but I lived it from the beginning stages and, and was there while it was being built up to the end to get you know watching it back on TV and be like wow that's a great feeling that we had there you know and it's great wrestling from the passionate crowds hopefully we got one coming up in West Virginia
1: oh no doubt there's some of the best fans I think that we've been around but you know, just to kind of tie it in, obviously, with the WWE connection and your ECW connection, and a lot of people might not remember this either, but you were part of the original ECW invasion of Monday Night Raw in early 1997 that was uh, the, you know, really the big pitch for Barely Legal at the time uh, for the first ECW pay-per-view. But can you kind of take us back to that night? What was that like, you know, the feeling of you guys are outside – talent coming on to Monday Night Raw, which was you know was battling for its life against Monday Nitro at the time. So bringing ECW on was so different. But if you can, just take us back to that night and Paulie bringing you guys into the Manhattan Center and uh, walking into that WWF locker room in uh, 97 with yeah, a well, lot we of all, we
4: actually, Oh, yeah. Well, I'll never forget that night. I wrestled Stevie Richards that night. I remember getting the call I was going to be one of the guys. It was us, the Dudleys, um, Raven. And uh, we all met with Dreamer. We all met and we took a limousine. We all went in one limousine or two limousines. I think it was like two limousines. We all pulled up together. We all came in. We were like a baseball team. And even when I talked to all the... I didn't know like Dustin Rose at the time, he was there. But I talked to him about this, you know, years later when I became very friendly with him in, in WWE. We all came in with a... Rec- we were like... A, we, we came in like we were like a high school hockey team. You know, basketball team, football team. We all came in with our ECW jackets on and... You know, we all came in together, and, you know, they had our own locker room for us. And, you know, we all lined up. We met Vince McMahon for the first time. And, um, you know, it wasn't – I don't want to say everybody made us feel cold, but you could just feel like – I don't think they knew that we were coming in that night. I don't think they knew because a lot of times when, 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 when they were doing those things where you have, like, Dreamer and Sandman in the crowd um, coming down the bleachers, a lot of times those guys in the ring didn't even know that was happening. They kept that very – that hush-hush. So I think it kind of felt like to the guys that were there that it's like, what the fuck are these guys doing? Like, oh, now they're going to be working with these guys. You know, it's like anything. You know, the wrestling business is not many spots, so you don't want to see a lot of people coming in. Now they see us all coming in. They had no idea what we were doing. I don't think the office told the locker room, hey, ECW is coming today, just to keep it on the hush-hush, you know. Um, so, that you know, I mean, that was great. And we really didn't have a lot of contact with the WW guys because we came in, We they kept us kind of separate because we really didn't wrestle any of those guys. I wrestled Stevie Richards. I think Van Dam wrestled uh, uh, Jeff Hardy, I want to say. I think it was Jeff Hardy or Matt Hardy. And um, I think they just got a chance to speak briefly right when we came in. So we didn't have a lot of contact with those those guys at that time. But it was a great feeling for us, and I remember when I was getting told that I was coming in, you know, me and Bubba were all pretty psyched. We're like, wow, here it is. It was like 1997, I think it was, 1998, somewhere in there. And here we are going to be on Monday Night Raw. You know, I actually just watched that match with me and Stevie. I, I, it was like a few months ago. I think my son actually pulled it up online. And I'm like, "Wow, that's a blast from the past." And I'm actually in one of the uh, the encyclopedias, one of the extra pages in the back like it has my picture and everything, but it has me and Steve versus Stevie invading Monday Night Raw. But that was a great time. It was a great great thing for my career, a great thing for my great thing for your life, I would say it was very exciting. A lot of things were exciting back then.
1: Uh, it, was, uh, it was so cool at that time to see ECW on uh, WWF TV because WWF TV was a little, getting a little stale. Uh, it was kind of as was start, it was starting to take off a little bit. It, was, uh, it needed a little shot of adrenaline. But what was it that Vince said to you guys? Is obviously he was still in the commentating booth at that point, so he was watching it all ringside rather than right behind the curtain. So uh, what was Vince McMahon's kind of words of encouragement to you guys coming
4: in? Well, he didn't get. He didn't in close. He just said, "Nice to meet everybody. Nice to meet everybody." And obviously, me watching it back, he he watched my match because he was calling it. He did the play-by-play. Him, Vince. It was it was it was McMahon, um, Paulie, and Jerry Lawler. Those were the three guys that did the commentary for our match. So the only thing I really heard from him was what went on during the match. You know, um, after that, besides saying hello to him, we all said goodbye, and that was that was really it. He didn't get. I don't have any like. He didn't like say anything special to me. Only thing I know is when I watched the match back, I heard you know he did the commentary. So that's all. Like, and that was mostly at work anyway, because he was just trying to, you know, play the game out there with Lawler against Paulie, and he seemed to be like the middleman out there, and you know. But Vince, I think Vince let us do that because you know he knew Paulie and he was a little inside there too. But like you said, the WWE could be getting stale. Nitro was was gaining. So Vince, and Vince would hear the chants ECW when he'd go in the area, you know, he would hear the chants from the people. It started, we started knocking on the door, and he started saying, hey, who, who are these people? You know, and, 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 you know, as a businessman, I think he said, you know what, why don't we maybe do something with them? And I think that, I think it was an experiment, really, you know, and I think when we came to the Hammerstein Ballroom that night, you know, the fans all knew who we all were and the reaction that they got. And just as a smart businessman, he thought it was a good idea to do something with us to help. And I think it did help. It helped everybody. Helped us tremendously. And I think it helped those guys, too.
1: Oh, totally did. It was such a great show in retrospect. And actually, it was also the return of the Road Warriors that night. So it's a pretty, uh, pretty big raw by the, uh, the standards of the day. Because uh, WWF TV, like we said, was a little stale. But, you know, you'd go on to work for WWE for, like you said, eight years. And Vince McMahon, you know, he's there the whole time. So kind of how was your relationship with Vince as you kind of progressed through that eight years? And we're going to touch on the Cruiserweight Championship in a minute, but how was Vince with you as you uh, kind of, you know, became one of the uh, the veterans of the uh, the crew after a while there?
4: Yeah, no, he was. I had a good relationship with him. I did some on-camera stuff. I don't know if you guys remember. We did the hit list where me, Chuck, and Johnny went out there and interrupted McMahon, and he hired us to go uh, when Hulk Hogan did the Captain America thing. Um so I had some on camera stuff with Magic Man, which is great to do because you, you you learn a lot. But um, yeah, no, I I had a good I had a good relationship, working relationship with him, you know, and and he knew he knew I, I I would do anything I was asked. I was the first one to go out there and eat the worms, you know, when when the Boogeyman was there, you know, and then he started, you know, he was doing his thing with the worms, and then they decided, hey, we're going to start putting them in in his opponent's mouth. So you know, he's actually the one that came up to me and Stephanie and like, well, first the uh. My agent came up to me with Steamboat, and when he first told me it, I was like, No. Like, I thought he was ribbing me, of course. I'm like, No, really? He's like, Oh, yeah, you know, after he's going to beat you, he's going to pull out the worms, he's going to stick them in your mouth. And I'm like, Oh, bullshit. You know, I thought they were fucking joking with me, you know. And then Stephanie came over, and he's like, Oh, she's like, you okay with this, you know? And I said, Yeah, I'm okay. I said, Are we really doing that? And she's like, Well, yeah, you know, Vince. And then Vince came over to me a little while later, and, um, you know, Tied me on the shoulder. He said, you, you, you okay with this? And then I was like, all right. I guess they're going to stick worms in my mouth here. <laughs> That's the way it's working. <laughs> so I'm like, um, yeah, I guess so, you know. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, just you know, it's something new we're doing. And, and I, you know, I agreed to it and went out there and did it, of course. It would have been career suicide if I didn't Probably They didn't exactly say that. But, um, you know, I figured, what the fuck? You know, I went out there. and But after that, they did it to they started doing it to everybody. That was like the gimmick. He would eat the worms himself, and he would stick them in his opponent's mouth. You know, so you know my relationship was good with him. I mean, it, 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 you know, he as good as it could be. You know, he I never I never fucked up anything enough where he was upset at me and screaming at me. You know, and I would come through the curtain, and you know, he'd always give me the thumbs up. You know, he always look when you come through the curtain. Vince is always sitting in that corner. He always kind of eyes his way, and you know, if he's happy with you, he'll be looking at you, waiting for you to look at him. And sometimes, not that he's not happy with you, sometimes he might be doing something else, but, you know, for the most part, he go in there, he'll give you that nod and give you the thumbs up, and then you, you know you went out there and did what he wanted you to do, you know, so, but, um, yeah, I had a good business relationship with him, and he treated me good, and, you know, I never had a problem with him, I mean, he knows where I am, so, yeah, it was good.
1: No, that's fantastic. It's uh, it's cool to hear a story like that about the Boogeyman. But, you know, I touched on the Cruiserweight Championship, and obviously it's back now. And when you were the Cruiserweight Champion, there was a lot of great talent there. And I feel like you guys got put on uh, the secondary shows a lot. I mean, you were on SmackDown, but I feel like the Cruiserweight Championship kind of got pushed off to the secondary show. And now they actually have a show for the Cruiserweights, you know, to showcase them. But what do you think about that progression of where the Cruiserweights are now? It's obviously – Uh, become its own genre within WWE, and the Cruiserweight title is now back after being gone for many, many years, but have you had a chance to kind of check out what they've done with this Cruiserweight division now?
4: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, I love half those guys that are there now, I wrestled all on the independents with when I left WWE. I left WWE, Tony Meese and uh, all the guys that are there now. I love Tony, and and I love watching them. I'm glad they're there. They're they're great talents, and they belong there. You know, they belong there. Tony Neese belonged there three years ago. You should have been there, um, I see what goes on with them, and I think it's good. I always listen when I was there, I was we always thought the Cruiserweight should have a part of the show, you know, and unfortunately you were right, we were on the velocity and heat and all that kind of shit, and yeah we got we were on Smackdown here or there, but um you know, yeah, but it just goes to show you as time goes on, things change, and you know kind of what, what, what they took is kind of like what it reminds me of is uh, ECW. We were going on at 10 o'clock at night when we were on sci-fi which is a hard thing to do, you know, you, they, they tape their a uh, couple matches before the main show goes on the air, then the main show goes on the air for two hours, and then, and then you go on live at 10 o'clock. That's when ECW was on Sci-Fi. It seems like they got that spot, you know, they put the Cruiserweights in that spot, which they got to work even harder because that crowd seen a lot of shit. They just watched um, SmackDown Live. They watched a couple dark matches before, you know, and now they have to go out there and follow all the big stars that they saw. So it's actually a hard spot, but I think they're doing a hell of a job. You know, I watch it, um, see what the guys are doing, and um, you know, I think it's good. I'm glad they're getting t- time to shine. I'm glad, you know, the business changes and it's always going to change. And you know, they brought the NXT. Well, not brought it in, but they got the NXT. They have. Looks like when you watch that show, that's a nice cult following and small little buildings on top of. You, except when they go to Barclays Sun now and stuff like that. But if you watch their regular tapings from Florida, full sale and stuff. So. You know, I think um I think it's good. I think the cruiserweights have a place in the business. Um although now you also see guys like um AJ Styles who once was considered a cruiserweight, you know, he's with the main roster getting the world championship and Dean Ambrose, you know, those are guys those are not big guys, but you know, the business that's again how the business changed where you're getting guys that are not that big becoming the world champion going on their talents, you know. So um so that's good too and you know I'm glad they got the spot, I'm glad they got a chance to showcase, it's, it's uh, extra hour TV for just the Cruiserweights to shine, and um, you know, um, I like it. It's
1: interesting too that they were able to bring back a couple of guys, you know, Tajiri's the in there, and Brian Kendrick's in there, and this Cruiserweight Classic they did, is just it's absolutely mind-boggling that WWE was able to kind of, like you said, adapt and move forward. Uh, somewhat to really channel the uh, the hardcore fan, which is something I think a lot of people have always debated. You know, well, they don't listen to the hardcore fan. They don't want to do this to give it to us. But, you know, now the hardcore fan wants cruiserweights. You got cruiserweights. You want to see developmental territories, you got NXT. But is that something you could have ever imagined that WWE – I mean, obviously we know it was going to be the, the number one game in town. But the immense size of the operation, now you have Raw, SmackDown, NXT – Two oh five live, all these other great shows. Did you see WWE as you were there? Really growing to the heights it is now because it's bigger than ever.
4: No, no, I didn't notice. Uh, I didn't see that. That this coming. I thought it was big when I was there. I didn't know. Um, you know, they had the, I was there through a few developmental systems. Ohio Valley. I was there for, uh, for the, the F. Uh, Florida Wrestling when they did it in Florida. Uh, was it FCW? You know, so those are their yeah. developmental territories. So it was like, it's like I saw the other territories that they were trying, other developmental deals that they were trying. Uh, I didn't, um, you know, I didn't see NXT coming, but obviously, um, you know, they're doing something right with it. You know, it's working and all the guys are, you know, you know coming through it. So, again, it's, to me, it's like another territory itself. It's another territory itself that the guys are making a living and getting exposure and learning and, you know, before they could come up to the main roster so it's kind of like another company within the company you know what i mean so it's actually uh yeah. you know, it's actually it's good you know good to watch it's good to watch so Oh no, it's
1: it's, uh, it's really cool and before we uh we start to get to the uh the ending portion here i just got to hit on this it's something we got to uh we got to address because it's the secondary ECW. You did mention it already. But, you know, what were your thoughts on it looking back? I mean, it's ten years already removed from that second WWECW. It established a lot of guys. It gave a lot of those OVW guys a chance to come up and also integrate a lot of the originals, which was very, very cool to see because you got to get a guy like Danny Doring up there and C.W. Anderson, guys that weren't on WWE TV got the chance to come back or come in for the first time in some cases. But, you know, just give us your uh, synopsis or your thoughts on that uh, d- that ECW retread around uh, 2006.
4: Well, I mean, at the at the time, I was I was happy that it was coming back. You know, in the very beginning, you know, supposedly Paulie was going to have his hands in everything. Uh, I was great to see Bald Mahoney and, and Danny Doring and give these guys jobs. I mean, in a way, it's better for them because I was already employed and had a job. But you know what? At that time, a lot of the guys weren't getting a lot of TV time. So it was like okay, it's like another avenue, another avenue to go. Um, you know, unfortunately, it didn't work out. You know, but I had high hopes for it. You know, I had high hopes for it, but um, you know, it just it, it was just something that didn't. You know, it it went for whatever about a year. You know, and it, and it was hard too going on ten o'clock at night. Just like I said, the cruiserweight is the hard thing to do. You know, people sitting through dark matches, heat matches, or whatever velocity matches, and then and then you got a live show. And then you're going live. You know, you got a regular show, tape show, SmackDown, and then you're going on live. You know, so sometimes the crowd is just tired. But, you know, it's just, you know what, it's very hard to rekindle something. You know, what what we did down in Philadelphia back in the early 90s wasn't planned. It happened. So when something great, as great as it was, happened, and as passionate as the fans were about it, to try to bring it back 10 years later and, you know, Back then, a lot of times fans didn't see people getting thrown through tables. You know, it's the shit that we did then was new. After the ECW did it, not ECW, we never did it. Then Edge and Christian, and the Hardys, you know, they were doing those tables, ladders, and chairs matches, doing all that stuff. And then you try bringing the ECW into that. They were doing that in '97, '98, '99, just when when we were doing it too. I don't want to say we created it. I'm not saying we created it, but and then when when in 2006, you wanna trying to bring the ECW back and do the same things we did in the early 90s, but the difference is the people saw it already now. It's not new. A lot of times the people that, that wrote to the ECW products, I hear people say all the time, man, I always say up to one in the morning, these fucking guys are hitting each other with canes, they're putting it through tables, fire. But in 2006, they seen, it. they seen ECW do it. They seen the WWE do thumbtack matches and all that stuff. So how could you rekindle something that the people already see? Do you know what I'm saying? It wasn't new then.
0: Makes Does that sense? sense? And that's and kind of the reason why obviously it didn't really last that long and it kind of didn't pan out the way I guess they thought it would. But obviously ECW, um, the new ECW holds nothing. It doesn't hold a candle to so the old ECW at all.
4: No, no, and, they, and, they, and they, they couldn't. You know, it was also on the, w, you know, WWE was changing directions then, too, and they got out of the Attitude Era, and they didn't want to do certain things on TV. Well, if you're going to tell the people, we're bringing ECW back, and you don't do the shit you did when the fans that were watching it saw it 15 years ago, the, the, there's, you know, it's kind of like when the XFL came in. You had all the NFL saying, that's not football, that's not really, had everybody against it because it was, well, if you would have looked at the XFL, as not, not competition but an alternative, a different style of football and accept it compared to just saying, Oh, that shit ain't NFL NFL's number one. Fuck that XFL. Well you need people need to give the XFL a chance. You know? It's like you you look at it differently. I I didn't look at the XFL as 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 uh, competition to the NFL. I looked at it as an alternative a little something different. So it was a little different. They said, Oh, that's not like the NFL. Well what the fuck we didn't want something like the NFL. They wanted something to be different. And if you look at a lot of the technology, which I'm sure you heard now when you're watching the XFL, a lot of the stuff that Vizic Man did then, camera angles and stuff like that, they do now in pro football. But just people were right away ready to jump all over it and, and just try to, like, dog it, which is it's the same type of thing. People that watched the, the the new ECW compared it to the old ECW, and it wasn't the same. And that's it.
0: Now, as I start to wind it down here... You've had so many memorable matches. I mean, we talked about UWFI and Japan. We talked about WB and winning the Crew the Wake title. We talked about ECW, obviously the original ECW. Do you have a favorite match or maybe a couple favorite matches that really stick out in your career?
4: I would say a couple. It's hard to say a favorite match. You know, one of my I
0: had a lot of fun
4: matches when I did the three-way dances with Tajiri uh, and Super Crazy and Philly and stuff like that. I loved my match with Rob Van Dam uh, for um, the hardcore TV we did in Chicago at the, uh, I guess I believe it was the Odeon. Um, that was a, It was, on, it was a, you know, tapes for TV. Um, of course, I would say one of my favorite matches, but I was only part of the match. There was eight of us in the match, I believe, and that had to be, I, mean, I was lucky enough out of, out of the eight years, I wrestled in, you know, a lot of the smaller pay-per-views, but I, I made two of the top four pay-per-views. I wrestled in WrestleMania twenty. I was part of that Cruiserweight Invitational. And, of course, just being part of WrestleMania at Madison Square Garden. I mean, I've wrestled at Madison Square Garden many times. But just to be in WrestleMania 20 where, as a kid, me, my father, and my brother went to WrestleMania 1. So whoever known, 20 years later, I had my parents and my family there, and I was actually wrestling in WrestleMania 20. And I was also part of the Royal Rumble twice. Uh, One time I was in the Rumble itself, and then another time we did like a Cruiserweight thing. In the on the Royal Rumble pay per view, um, and that's when actually Goldberg speared me. If you if you Google Goldberg's ten worst spears, I think I'm number two, two or three somewhere in there. You can Google, it. he's the one that threw me
0: out. Yeah.
4: All you gotta do is go ten worst spears of Goldberg. And I'm number two or three. Uh, but as far as matches like that, I mean, even though the Royal Rumble, that I consider that one of my favorite matches because it's the Royal Rumble. Uh, WrestleMania, like you know, listen, like if I die tomorrow, I could say I wrestled in WrestleMania, and a lot of people that could be there for 13 years can't even say that, you know. So, um, you no, know, that's it. I would say Van Dam's match and a few with uh, Tajiri, and my WrestleMania and Royal Rumble matches.
0: Good stuff. And I did not know you were at WrestleMania one. That is pretty amazing. Did you have good seats?
4: Uh, no, we were in the upper rafters, but my father used to bring me a Madison Square Garden every other Monday. When I was a kid, I, grew, I live in New York. When I was a kid, um, every other Monday was on the MSG channel. And, and not every other Monday. Every other month, it was on the M- MSG channel. And the other time, it was at the Garden every month, Monday night. And the other time, it was non-televised. So I'd have to run to the, in the morning and get the daily news. And I used to read the paper and see who who won the matches. And my father used to take me all the time. Every other month, when it was not on TV, he would take me to Madison Square and watch the match. And um, he got tickets to WrestleMania One, um, and me, for me, him, and my brother. And uh, we were at WrestleMania One. No, we didn't have great seats, but we were inside the arena.
0: Still, great to be there, though. I mean, it's pretty remarkable that you could be at WrestleMania One and then be wrestling in WrestleMania Twenty. It's like a, kind of one of those remarkable moments or a real like tentpole. Things like, wow, I, I used to be a fan, now I'm actually wrestling here. And obviously WrestleMania 20 was a pretty big WrestleMania for them.
4: Well, it's like being a Super Bowl. At the time, it was yeah. the biggest. And just wrestling in WrestleMania is like me. It's like being on a football team. And one guy could be on a football team for 10 years and not get a Super Bowl ring. And another guy could be in the NFL two years and get two Super Bowl rings. You know, play for two different teams, whatever the case is. You know, so you just got to be lucky. I'm glad they came up with doing something with the cruiserweights back then. And, you know, like I said, I didn't have a singles match, but I was part of the pay-per-view. I was on the pay-per-view.
0: Yeah, nobody can uh, take that away at nope. all, which is great. Now, you know, your career, we mentioned a bunch of awesome guys. Like you mentioned RBD. Jiri's super crazy. I mean, he's Lesnar. You had the chance to wrestle. Uh, even Undertaker, throw him out there. Eddie Guerrero, Chavo Guerrero, a bunch of great guys. Is there an opponent that you really in- enjoyed wrestling maybe the most or you had the best chemistry with? Or was there somebody maybe kind of off the radar that we're maybe not too familiar with? Uh,
4: I, had, um, I had a couple of, um, uh, to Jerry I always got had good matches with for whatever reason. Um, I had good matches with, with me and Chavo always went out there. We always had good matches and tag matches. But there were a couple of matches for some reason and definitely not his fault, my fault, whatever it was. For some reason, we had a couple where, especially one SmackDown one time we came back, I looked at him, he looked at me, he goes, what the hell was that? I said, man, that fucking sucked. And for some reason, it just wasn't clicking. And, you know, um, that actually happened a couple of times with me. Now, me and him wrestled as the FBI versus him and uh, Eddie many a times. It was just for a couple times for some reason, you know. We we we've had some that just weren't good. And like I said, I'm playing, it ain't him, it ain't me, it ain't whatever. It's just just sometimes things don't click. Um, but other than that, you know, if I could really think about it, there, there there was a few guys that you know that you know you just you know you just don't have good chemistry with, you know. I um, talk about the guys you had good chemistry with, but yeah you know, but that's it if you're gonna let me name one guy, I would say I remember a couple of uh, smackdowns I had with Chava. that that just it just didn't work, and like I said, not his fault, not my fault it just didn't work.
0: Who's your best chemistry with when you're out there? Was it Tajiri or, or some or somebody super crazy?
4: I would say Tajiri and super crazy. you know I feel like I can go out there now with Tajiri and we could put on one of our uh one of our matches that we've done years ago and, and still pull it off at my stage of the game too. I don't do too much anymore. You know, I'm, I'm, I have a, you know, I have a real good job right now. I'm doing well in my regular life. Uh, I, I kind of protect myself when I go out there, you know, you know, I, you know, I'll do some stuff, but I, I'm not risking what I got going on right now. I got a retirement system. I got a 401k. Uh, so I'm doing good. So it's like, you know, I tell that to promoters all the time. I said, you know, you know, I give a, you're gonna get a hundred percent, but you know, at this stage of the game, you know, I got to be careful in what I do, especially getting hurt.
0: So, you know, what I'm curious about. and Maybe this is kind of a dumb question, but I'm always curious of this. Cause you guys are able to put on great matches, but how do you guys kind of put that together, considering he, you know, you got a Mexican and, and you got a, a guy that's Japanese, but somehow you're able to mesh that all well. You know, well. Oh, it's
4: wrestling. Together. Wrestling talk. You know, you could talk, I can't speak Japanese, but I could talk wrestling Japanese. You know, you know moves. And it was a little easier for me because I wrestled in Japan for three years. So it was like, I, you know, I knew certain words anyway. And it's easy to describe moves. And, you know, once you do a, a, a lot of matches together, you say, hey, remember, you know, Chicago, I do this. And I just motion through it. And he, oh, yeah, 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 he got it. You know, so it's like you don't got to really speak. And Tajiri and Super Crazy spoke English. You know, maybe not in the very beginning, but certainly enough to go over wrestling matches. Certainly enough, you know. Well,
1: this has obviously been a ton of fun and walking down memory lane. Uh, And I got to tell you, the UWFI stuff, uh, I really hope people take that and really listen to it because that was compelling, and we appreciate you sharing that. we want to give the big plug for the huge show coming up this coming – or, excuse me, next coming weekend where – You will be heading down to West Virginia for Primal Conflict Wrestling's 10-year anniversary show called A Dominance. It's actually March 4th, 2017. You can go to PCWWrestling.com for tickets. Of course, they will be hanging from the rafters. But as we like to end it, what we like to do is we like to either get the crystal ball out or we like to take the uh, introspective look at things. And if you look at your career, what you've done, and you're still obviously wrestling to this day. But what do you think it is you've left in professional wrestling? Is it you know, that you were, uh, you you know, you came through the ranks, you had some great trainers, you experienced a lot through ECW, or is your uh, legacy yet to be written uh, in the wrestling world? Obviously, you've kind of moved on, but, you know, what is it your legacy you would leave in professional wrestling?
4: No, honestly, um, I- I think my legacy whatever I've done in wrestling I think is is kind of over. You know, I'm not looking to do anything else. I'm not looking to be really involved in business. except for the independence that I do, I have some fun with it. Um like I said, what I got going on now, uh I'm an, I an, I work for the justice court. I'm an account manager for a security firm. I have it pretty good right now. I work great hours. I got, you know, retirement, I got uh, days off, you know, uh, you know, what do you call it? Vacation days. Um and, you know, it would be hard to give that up to go back to something that is never a guarantee. They could sign you for a year. They could sign for two years. I'm 44 years old right now. And, you know, and I'm not looking to go back and, and work full time on the road. Not that they asked me, but that's not something, you know, I don't make any phone calls. I don't call up. Um, you know, I have to put what I got on hold. And I worked hard after wrestling to do, to do what I'm doing now. And believe me, I use wrestling to get to where I am. I use it I use it as a resume I use it to make contacts and stuff like that but um and I don't see myself it took a couple of years to get to where I am now so I don't see myself really pursuing anything in pro wrestling I do it now for fun I do it to make extra money like everybody else um but I don't see myself really ever doing anything big time anymore so whatever legacy I had between ECW WWE all the memories I had I said that's that's pretty much it um, you know, people always want to hear dirt about this guy, this guy, this guy. And, I, I, and I'm honest with people. I say, no, I, I'm not burying anybody from WWE, not because I'm looking to go back there, because I'm not. I just don't have anything so terrible that somebody did to me that I had to sit here and talk shit about them. You know, I had a great career. I'm happy with what I'm doing now. I'm not looking for anything. I don't need anybody. And I'm good.
1: And you can't uh, you can't beat that at all. Uh, maybe we can leave them with uh, that. In the full-blooded Italians, you didn't have many Italian partners. Maybe we can uh, <laughs> maybe we can leave them uh, on that. Big, big Sal. <laughs> That's great. Well, Guido, before we end this, just please share with the listeners of the Two Man Power Trip uh, anything else you got going on, or if they can reach out to you in the social media world, please uh, share with us. The floor is yours.
4: Yeah, I'm I have. Um... Actually, I just got on Twitter, and then it's uh, Nunzio Guido, and I have, uh, which I don't really do it too much, and I have um, Instagram, so you can join my Instagram. To tell you the truth, I don't even know how to tell you to do that. My wife just got me on it about two weeks ago, so I just started doing that myself, so I kind of, uh, I distanced myself from the wrestling world as far as social media went when I was doing my own thing in the real world. Um, but I got it for fun, you know. I actually I posted the poster for you guys on Twitter, and yeah, I'm starting to get some followers and starting to have some fun with it. But um, I, I stay away from Facebook, you know. It's not my thing right now. So, um, so that's it. You can follow me on Twitter.
3: I'm out there. Thanks for listening to the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. What the world is downloading.